All About Agatha, the podcast all about Agatha Christie, in which we read all 66 of her mystery novels and attempt to rank them. This week, however, we are not reading a novel. We are reading a short story, The Mystery of Hunter's Lodge, first published in the Sketch Magazine on May 16th, 1923. This is yet another Poirot short story, and let's dive right in. This is a Poirot in which Poirot is actually not active in the investigation because our dear Hercule is uh, in bed with a terrible case of influenza. Mm. This entire story is based on the idea that Hastings has gone out into the field and is reporting back to a bedridden Poirot. And I would just like to briefly point out that the uh, having influenza as of May 16th, 1923, is no laughing matter. This would would have just been about five years after the worldwide flu pandemic that, you know, killed so many people. So uh, we'll talk about the differences between the adaptation of this story and the story itself. But I think that's a big one in that there's there are very little hijinks having to do with Poirot being sick. It really is just a mechanism for him to be totally inactive and for Hastings to have to take the reins and for various things to result from that. But this is like, he's seriously sick and he's out and he's that, that, and that's it. Um, And that's how it's treated in the story. Right. And so the very first thing that we find out, other than the fact that Hastings has just recovered from influenza and that Poirot is quite ill, is that a very frantic gentleman has come for Poirot's assistance because his dear beloved uncle, he has just found out via telegram from his wife, has been murdered. So let us address our murder victim. He is one Mr. Harrington Pace, a fantastic name. That's a good name. The owner of (laughs) Hunter's Lodge, which is quote-unquote a small shooting box in the heart of the Derbyshire Moors. And Mr. Pace was foully murdered by a close-range gunshot wound to the back of his head, presumably from a revolver, which has been conveniently loaded and mounted on the gunroom wall in which he was murdered. And um, yes, he's the uncle of the uh, client who has come to Poirot, one Roger Havering. And we should note that uh, Mr. Pace's mother is an American, typically American in appearance, which I also highlighted when I read. I think Catherine and I both picked up on that. I'm not exactly sure what typically American in well, appearance Well, ja- it means. becomes a plot point later. Well, yeah, I don't know what it means either, but it becomes I know a plot clean, point later. clean shaven. Yes. I mean, there's the idea that Americans tend to be clean shaven, but I feel like it's it's... A bit, a bit more than that. I'm not exactly sure what. No, and it's it's not it's not is. spelled <laughs> out. So we actually don't have no. any textual no. indication as to what that might be. Um, Lost to the sands of time, <laughs> alas. Right, um, <laughs> and Mr. Pace uh, is in possession of a great fortune. And he has been living with his nephew, Roger Havering, and Havering's wife, Zoe. Um, but he has been sort of, I guess, I wouldn't say paying rent is the right word, but while he has been living with them, he seems to also be supporting them. Right, right. So let's get into the suspects. Uh, we have Roger Havering, of course. Um, and he is the second son of the fifth Baron Windsor, a bit of a prodigal son, which is why he has taken on his, his uncle, Mr. Harrington Pace at his home. So again, not that the uncle is per se paying rent, but he's, it's understood that he's supporting this 
somewhat ne'er-do-well nephew of his who's never really been able to quite keep it together. And then we have, uh, of course, Roger Havering's wife, Zoe, and it is noted that um, before the war, of course, that would be World War I, she acted um, on the stage under the name Zoe Camsbrook at the Frivolity, which is a London theater. And she's a very young and vibrant woman. And I'm very proud of myself that when that detail of her being an actress was just oh so casually dropped on like the second page the second of the short page. story, I knew I knew that it would be uh, significant. We are not so hey, I'm, we, we I'm, are we are not yet to our clues. So let us continue through <laughs> through our suspects. Sure. We have two other suspects. We have the black bearded man. Yes, and he is the gentleman who has um, paid a visit to Pace immediately before his gunshot-aided demise. He's wearing a light overcoat, a dark beard, and he quote-unquote spoke like an American. Which, I get get what that means. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Self-explanatory there. Um, He's been let in by Mrs. Middleton, who is the Havering's housekeeper and the sort of maintainer of Hunter's Lodge. And she's a middle-aged woman who dresses all in black, and she's been hired three weeks previously from a very respectable agency. So those are our suspects. Uh, You know, short list for a short story. And let's just take a snapshot of the world as it seems to be before we get into the clues and deductions that lead us to solving this murder. Essentially, as we mentioned, um, Mr. Havering receives this very distressed telegram from his wife, alerting him to the fact that their dear, dear uncle has been murdered the night before. And she tells him to seek out you know, only the, the finest help in a detective before returning to Derbyshire. So that is why Mr. Havering calls up Poirot. Of course, Poirot, being bedridden with the influenza, allows for once Hastings to accompany um, Mr. Havering back to Hunter's Lodge without Poirot. So Hastings is uh, flying solo here. Be, be afraid. Be very, very afraid. Um, uh, Hastings does encounter uh, ins- our friend Inspector Jap investigating the murder when he gets to Hunter's Lodge. And um, we see the body. Uh, you know, we see that it has indeed been shot in the back of the head with a revolver that was in the gun room and mounted up on the wall. And it seems as if the, the stranger who Mrs. Middleton, the housekeeper, let in was the one who did the deed. So the the, the simple solution would be let's figure out who the black bearded man is who spoke like an American and who was let in by the housekeeper. Perhaps we will figure out uh, who the murderer is. We can quickly go through the clues because uh, thankfully mm-hmm. there are not very many of them and it's short. And so as, as Kemper mentioned... The first clue an astute reader should see, like the very first clue, is in fact. For once I was an astute reader. <laughs> Congratulations! I'm so, I'm so proud of myself. For once I was an astute Kudos reader. Kudos on that. <laughs> um, it's on the second page, and Hast- it's Hastings. In fact, they have a like a who's who. Um, that he pulls down from the shelf because Poirot can't get out of bed, and he immediately wants to know who this client is waiting downstairs. And Hastings... And Poirot loves his who's who, doesn't he? Oh, my gosh. He's constantly consulting that who's who. Well, you know, it's the Google search of 1923. Right. And so Hastings says basically like, oh, you know, I I did recognize her. And so the very fact that he immediately recognizes his name as um, somebody who once played under a stage name and who was an actress, you know, before the war... 
any Christie reader should know that if someone is in any way identified as having been an actor or, you know, enjoys a bit of panto or owns a dressing up box, chances Mm -hmm. are that is not to be overlooked. And chances also are that they might like dressing up in other times. Exactly. So So we should be very, very suspicious of this Zoe Zoe Havering from the Never get-go. trust an actor in a Christie novel. Never trust an actor. Uh, never trust an actor in general, oh, let's be honest. that's not fair. Uh. I, I know plenty <laughs> of very fine, decent people who are actors. Do I you? even feel <laughs> Prejudices. Prejudices. This is getting into more of an L.A.-specific conversation, perhaps. But um, anyway, um, so second clue, we get these very specific um, travel times by which Roger Havering takes the train. So a car comes from Elmersdale, which is a town near to Hunter's Lodge, to fetch Roger Havering in time for the 6.15 train to London. That train gets to London at 10.30, after which uh, Roger Havering goes immediately to his club. So he couldn't be anywhere near Hunter's Lodge at 9 o'clock, which is when the bearded gentleman arrived. And, of course, soon thereafter uh, is when the uncle was shot. So that feels like a such a perfectly airtight alibi. And Jap with, says as you know, much. It's just, yeah, yeah, that it's, it, it's a little too perfect. We should be a little suspicious of that. Right, and his, his alibi is completely confirmed by both the club and his wife. Next clue, Hastings and Jap both meet Mrs. Middleton, who is the housekeeper again, in a dimly lit hall. And they don't take all that much notice of her other than as a somewhat frumpy middle-aged housekeeper. And here is perhaps the the part where things go very differently than they would have if Monsieur Poirot were actually on the scene because never underestimate the hell. Ever. And Poirot don't, knows that. Don't ever. overlook them ever. <laughs> if somebody says they're the hell. Poirot knows that. Them. We know that. Or at least the astute reader knows that. Of course, Hastings doesn't know that because he's Hastings. So they just don't really um, take a close enough look at her. Um, look being the operative and word. Yes, look, look being the operative word. And um, Poirot, even from afar, you know, he's getting the he's getting updates from from Hastings. He immediately suspects that um, something is amiss with the housekeeper. And he's able to do that from miles away in bed because that is the power of Poirot. And what Poirot um, says is, you know, tell Jap immediately to make sure that she doesn't leave the premises. Right. Uh, of course, too of late. It's too late. By the time they get that message, the housekeeper is gone. She's missing. And they wondered, was she in league with this stranger who she led into the house? Was Is she in danger herself? You know, they, they don't know what's going on. No. So, and um, next final and the final clue, okay, is that we learn up front um, that Havering is rather poor. Um, at least not mm-hmm. as well off, certainly as his uncle, which is why he's, you know, sort of agreed to take his uncle in. And later on, we learn from Jap that, you know, if it were not for Havering's, you know, airtight alibi, he'd be completely suspicious. And Jap would have been on him immediately because not only is he lacking in funds, but he has a history when he was a youth of financial scams. Right. So what do we know from that? Well, we know that 
Airtight alibis are often suspicious that his wife was previously an actress, that they are in desperate need of money, that they are supporting each other's alibis, and that their housekeeper is missing and possibly not a housekeeper at all, and that she was not sent from the agency that the Haverings said that she was sent from. So, da-da-da, I mean... Pieces are kind of lining up. <laughs> da, da, da. So circumstantial evidence. Yeah, is pieces lining are up. lining up. Yeah, the ultimate deduction is that uh, Mrs. Havering was posing as the housekeeper. They were never seen in the same place together to, you know, throw suspicion away from them and onto someone else. And you know, Mr. Havering's alibi alibi is airtight because he was in fact nowhere near there and he did not shoot his uncle. The person who shot the uncle was Mrs. Havering because she was at the house in the guise both of as, as herself and this housekeeper who let in this supposed stranger. The only word, the only person's word we have for the stranger in uh, in the story is is the housekeeper. But there actually was no stranger. No, there wasn't. And so, and also, you know, the sort of frustrated ending is that both Jap and Hastings leave Hunter's Lodge knowing full well that all evidence is circumstantial and that there's absolutely nothing on the Haverings. And in fact, the Haverings are going to inherit all of their uncle's great wealth. Money. So, you know, there's going yeah. to be no conviction. There's going to be sort of no justice done, except... In an incredibly macabre turn in the last sentence of the last sentence last of the story. Sentence of the short story. We find out from Hastings that, you know, it's actually okay that Jap couldn't find anything on them to be prosecuted because in fact they were killed in a crash of an airmail to Paris and quote unquote justice was satisfied. That is the end of the story. The end. <laughs> Yeah, so that is that is quite a reckoning, and I mean, it's I've never I don't think I I don't think we've read yet thus far a more kind of um, extreme version of extra legal justice being served, and it's this notion that really does complicate I think the model for murder mysteries, where the reckoning does not mean necessarily that law and order prevail. It means that some version of justice is done, and in this case, it is entirely a sort of moral, almost hand of God sort of thing where these people who got away with, you know, they evaded the law, but they got their comeuppance in the end. They got their, I, they got their just desserts. They got their just desserts and one would assume from some sort of divine hand. And just to, I mean, I did a, I did a tiny bit of research just real quick on this this plane this supposed plane crash because again the story is being written in 1923 plane crashes in 1923 are a really big deal because hardly anyone was flying at that point um, which is why it's even mentioned that it was an airmail flight because most of the flying that was going on was actually for purposes of delivering mail and other freight and there was this really famous air crash that happened in 1920 which may which is probably what she's referring to because it happened in London this passenger London to Paris and it happened basically this plane lifted up in London couldn't even clear 100 feet crashed into a tree right off of an airfield the two crew and then two passengers so that would be the Haverings burned to death <laughs> in the plane because the plane the plane was so low it's not like plane crashes nowadays where right. uh, you know I just I've been finding in general that in these Poirot short stories we've been reading in like very 
different ways. The endings are often really abrupt. Well, not not just you know? they're very abrupt, and I again, as I said before, I think a, like quite macabre. Yeah, and, you know, well, I we think... even but we had that Hastings ending when Hastings was was angry oh, at right. Poirot. Remember that yeah, and he, he slammed off and tries to slam the door. Revenge, basically, like he will yeah. figure out a way to show him. Yeah. I mean, I think Poirot's um, Poirot and Hastings lines before the end are a little bit interesting. Hastings, you know, is really upset about the fact that they are not going to have. Um, any form of, you know, legal justice. And he says, the wicket flourished like a green bay tree, I reminded him, him being Poirot. But at a price, Hastings, always at a price. And it's like, I think Poirot does believe that, right? But at the same time, you know, and we've seen Poirot do in every, you know, one of these at some level, he has kind of done some sort of extra legal reckoning you know um yeah but in this but in this one he kind of sits back and leaves it no for to, for, to for god yeah for god or for essentially you know the universe however you want to evaluate that yeah and well no, but i actually think he quite specifically is catholic i mean he he really does believe in a christian god that i think does mete out justice and like this is probably the first time we're coming across it but we will again. And it is interesting that at times he feels the need to almost play God and take matters into his own hands. At other times, he, he, he might does. leave it up. Yeah. At other times like this, you know, this is, this is a good example of him leaving it to, you know, hands perhaps larger than his. But the idea and the fantasy remains intact that you do get, you know, karma exists. You do get your comeuppance. You get your just desserts. Like this is the nihilistic ending of this, well, of course, would be that they lived, they lived happily ever after you know, and it didn't matter. I mean, if anything more than, you know, some sort of Catholic version, I think that Poirot actually sort of represents a little bit of an old testamenty, like, you know, mm-hmm. a, a eye for an eye sort of system, like justice will be served. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing sort yeah. of charitable about his interpretation of, of people's moral failings. It's a little abrupt as a short story, and it's interesting to me Largely because this will come up again. It will come up in some of the novels, but it's the little gray cells tested to their utmost to the extent that Poirot is not given anything firsthand. He's not given any evidence that he can see. He's not allowed to interview Mm -hmm. anybody, and yet he can still piece the puzzle uh, parts together because that is just how his brain works. His brain, you know, seeks to find the pattern or the solution in this. And I... I, Well, and it's the ultimate test for the reader because he's given exactly everything that the reader is given. mm -hmm. Right. And I I honestly have to say, like, there are some, like, we're not ranking this because it's a short story, but, like, there are some Agatha Christie's where we've complained about um, the lack of, you know, credibility, either in terms of how things happen or the way that you know, deductions are made and that humans aren't acting like humans or the leaps are just really extreme or require specialized knowledge. But in this one, like it, it's all there. It's absolutely all there. Like you, you could come to the, the conclusions that he comes to are valid, especially in that they're not even proven. You know, he has no way of proving them, but, right. but it does make sense how he gets there. And the reader could have gotten there too. Right. I mean, I think, you know, you know 
it has a usual leap of deductive guesswork in that I don't think most people, unless you're looking for the clue, like as we've laid out, most people are not going to think like, oh yes, that lady in the house of the murdered man was also dressing up as other people. I mean, right. you know, this is the, the particular, um, you know, suspension of disbelief there. But, but you know, I guess. I mean, there's a, there's been a murder. I mean, there's already a suspension of disbelief just given the fact that you know this is like the fifteenth murder that we've that we've. And there's actually we can we can segue into talking about the adaptation because I could be reading into it, but there was a really funny moment when the first time Poirot was informed that there's been a murder. He almost has this look of like, God, (laughs) like again, come on, which, you know, it's the suspension of disbelief of like this man is just like, you know, just insanely surrounded by murder. There's so many suspensions of disbelief that have to happen in this genre. No, no, it's true. But at least at least people are coming to him. He's not, you know, he's not Jessica Fletcher. It's not like he shows up at a random place and all of a sudden people are dropping like flies around him. You know, yes. people people yes. do come to true. him for his assistance. Well, that is one thing that's different between the story and the and the the episode where it um, is a coincidence. You know, yeah, where it is a coincidence because he happens to just be on a on a hunting party, and we can just uh, you know get into the episode, mm-hmm. which I actually quite enjoyed. It's the um, so where you know this is again the David Suchet series, and it's the final episode in the third season slash series of the show and it's quite a lavish production as always and they really fill out the hunter's lodge and the surrounding moors and it opens up on a hunting party that Poirot and Hastings are attending at Hunter's Lodge and then in the course of you know the the first day Poirot being outside of course gets a chill and actually becomes ill and it is treated much more comedically than it would be in the story and there's a bit of sickness hijinks going on there um which David Suchet plays to perfection as he always does and uh and then the murder happens and uh, you know the story takes its course so it's not a complaint I mean that it's a slight weakness in that it is then a coincidence that he happens to be there but it's another you well, know, allows, this is another episode it allows him to that's meet, very much fleshed right, out right it allows him to meet the principles uh, that he never meets in the short story exactly. itself. And it's also, you know, it's yeah. quite scenic at the beginning. Oh, yeah. As as always, we have, you know, moors with the snow-encrusted moors and the beautiful bounding British dogs and, you know, rifles and geese. And, you know, the series is just very consistent with character traits and they have to do a bit of um, convolutions sometimes to get Poirot to these set PC scenes. It's like you could almost see, I can imagine them in the writer's room or, you know, it's like one writer or two writers, but just saying like, how do we get Poirot to a hunting party? How do we get Poirot to in murder on the links? You know, they have that fun kind of like sporting town and that one, you know, Hastings basically hoodwinks him into it. And this one, it's just because of a recipe that he's after. So like, I, you know, I just appreciate the fact that they don't just plop him in and expect us to just kind of like swallow that. There's the, the characters never require a suspension of disbelief, which is, no. um, which is, which is lovely. Right. The, definitely the, just the, the mansion that they chose for it was also, I mean, in the story, Hunter's Lodge is described as a small gray stone building in the midst of the rugged moors. And it's basically pretty clear that it's sort of a dump. Um, right. And in in here, it's gorgeous, and this feast that they lay out 
for the hunters when they're coming back from that initial hunting party. It's like made by mouthwater and it's just like the typical sort of well, real estate and food porn the, that this series does. The so other well. thing that I would say that the adaptation does is that Harrington Pace comes off like a jackass, like pretty yes. much from the beginning. Whereas we of course don't see him at all. Um, other than as a corpse on a slab in the short story. Absolutely. And so they yeah. make they make a big effort of making it seem like he's a man who could have many enemies because like he is an unpleasant person. Yeah, like they create this whole other character of the game gamekeeper at Hunter's Lodge is his um, half brother, mm-hmm. illegitimate half brother, but he won't actually treat him. You know, he treats him as a servant, and the brother's asking for money just to get married, and he won't give him money. So that's one person that hates him, and they make they make a lot of that. So they make make him into a suspect. You know, it's the padding out of suspects that we see in these adaptations of the short stories, which is, is generally done pretty well. I overall liked it. I think you, Catherine, were saying you had some issues with the well, way that they I don't have, I don't have, I thought it was charming. Let me put it that way. Um, they actually, we actually mm-hmm. meet the real Mrs. Middleton in this episode. Mrs. Middleton was in fact a person yeah. who was intercepted and paid off, which anybody who suffered through the secret of chimneys might recognize um, as a dual plot device in that in that work. Mm-hmm. Um, the intercepting mm-hmm. of somebody who has been sent to be a servant and then replaced by somebody else. I thought that scene, the interrogation scene with her was very charming in a weird way. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, much of it is, like, very pleasant. I, like, enjoyed watching it enough. I think that my problem with it is, whereas the short story is a very nice little puzzle, the adaptation is far more ludicrous, in large part because we have to see much of it. This is one of the problems where, like, if you can off-screen things, they sometimes become at least somewhat more easily believed than if you have to actually... Did you you not believe in... You didn't believe in Zoe Havering's disguise as no, Mrs. Middleton. I, did not. I thought I actually I actually thought it was pretty well done. I mean, she she girlfriend committed. Yeah, she did. To, the, to her disguise, <laughs> she she wore these like uh, Coke bottle glasses. And then what I love is there's this scene, the the final scene when when Poirot, of course gathers everyone together, which which only happens in the episode and explains everything. We get a flashback to Mrs. Middleton taking off her disguise and becoming Zoe Havering. And her teeth are not it's not just false teeth, it's like false gums. Oh yeah, also. she went all it's out. like a really she went all out. Like it's it's an extreme kind of disguise. I don't I mean I agree with you. I think it was good for for how inherently bad it is when you have to actually see someone disguised. I actually don't think we mentioned this on the record, but for um, The Man in the Brown Suit, the adaptation, one of the many sorts of ridiculous things in that adaptation was seeing Tony Randall, right? Yeah, of course. Seeing, well, it is, it is seeing Tony Randall dress up as just completely hamming it up as a woman in you know various different women and, and Reverend Chichester. You know, it's in the book, you can say, sure, the same man has been has been inhabiting all these different personas but it's it's just so absurd well i mean this is is nowhere near that but i mean it's that and that's what i mean i think it was done about as well as it could be done i guess your point is that you still kind of cringed at it well it's not just that but i mean the sort of like essential confession towards the end the gathering the trope of gathering everybody in a room i actually liked that the story itself is like well yeah we can't do anything about this they're going to get away with 
with it. And like, yeah, the only, the only satisfaction you can have is that we know what happened, but that doesn't mean that we can do anything about it. There's a certain degree of bitterness about it in this, and then watching and then reading about them dying, dying. Well, right, the right, crash, of course. But, yes. but there's a certain degree of like very sort of cynical resignation. Like, yeah, sometimes people get away with terrible things, and there's nothing to be done about it. That I actually sort of like in the short story, and it's so neatly, tidily resolved in the episode in this kind of typically over-the-top way. I actually, I'm beginning to realize as we're going through these that, I mean, I think that obviously we have so many more mystery puzzle whodunits to go through, but Christy structures these, certainly the the short story too. I think she almost probably looked at it as an an opportunity to experiment a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of variety to the way that these stories are laid Mm -hmm. out, the way that they conclude, right. like they're not the, the formula of and especially, and I think just the most obvious and let's be honest, cheesy part of it that sticks out to us is that gathering, you know, the gathering of all the suspects right. and the r- reveal that certainly is going to happen in a lot of her books, but it's not happening in a lot of these early ones all that consistently. And, and the structure of the stories even though their mystery puzzles is more interesting than I think the adaptations would lead you to believe because they really do follow that formula much more slavishly than she did. You know, when I was watching the adaptation, it was one of the our rare rainy days in Los Angeles or rainy nights. And so I was like snuggled up in a wool blanket watching some Poirot. And like I remembered, it <laughs> really was like a flashback to being a kid in, you know, our snowy northern states, you know, snuggled up in a blanket watching Poirot and like you know they had this sort of like wintry roasts and it had a certain like you know tucked in comfort level to it that really does not exist in the short story and so I mean it was an it's this was more of a juxtaposition than I think that we've seen to me at least between the short story and the adaptation there was a like a harsher juxtaposition between what the short story was going for and where the adaptation went than I feel like I've seen in the previous ones we've been through. And I, yeah, I mean, and I appreciate what either, what, what both of them are, are yeah, trying to do. I mean, I think in, these, in the series, they're doing different things. I mean, the series clearly, again, you know, they made the decision for consistency and comfort. It's all the same time period. It's all the same characters. They infuse all the stories with, you know, the same cast of characters, which certainly wasn't the case in the short, in the short stories, their aims are, are absolutely different. I mean, you can feel Christy already in the experimenting and pulling away from what she, she did at the beginning with Mysterious Affair at Styles, which was very traditional or would become the traditional model. I mean, she, I don't think she liked to be as tied down as um, she became. <laughs> no, um, I don't think and so. the series though embraced that because the series is made for Christie fans and and they want that. They want they want what came to be recognized as the formula and I don't think Christie ever wanted to feel like she was just writing no, a formula. No, and I mean se. I think that also we are now ending up in a weird um timeline here because we have, you know, a mass of short stories, but as we've previously noted, they were all written about the same time. 
And so we are yeah. going to keep interspersing short stories, and thus we're going to keep interspersing all of these episodes of Poirot that everybody is like, you know, remembers as these beloved television episodes. We're going to keep interspersing those, except now we are getting far past them in where she's actually yeah. writing the novels. And, yeah, I, br- that's and true. I bring this up just because our next podcast will be one of the Christie, one of the greats, one of the Christie greats, and talking about. Well, we'll we'll find that out when we rank we it. We will. I mean, we're saying that now, and <laughs> I haven't read it in years. So um, I know maybe we'll maybe we'll read it and loathe it. Maybe I mean it's possible. It's possible, and I mean I think from an adaptation perspective, it will be interesting because it's going to run into going to run into some of the problems that we've just addressed about what you do with an adaptation where you have to see more than the story is letting on. Right. On that note. <laughs> Our next episode will be the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Yay! <laughs> yeah, we're, I think we're both very curious to see how this reads after not having read it in a long time. It, it's it's one of the classic Christies, and I feel like we this is kind of the first classic Christie that um, right. we're coming across. I guess style in that style is the first. It's kind of classic too, but we've been chugging through these thrillers, and I think I for one am excited to read a proper mystery puzzle. Uh, and not, and we're getting a Poirot that is in fact not going to be narrated by Captain Hastings. All right. Well, that is our episode for today. Obviously, next week we will be discussing the murder of Roger Ackroyd. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you as always. You can find us on Twitter at All About the Dame. You can find me, Kemper Donovan, at Kemper Donovan. You can find me, Catherine, at Robcat. And you can always email us. We would love to hear from you at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher however you listen to this podcast. It would mean a lot to us. And you can also find us on Instagram at allaboutthedame.